Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome. Happy Mother's Day, and uh, thanks for being here and celebrating uh, Mother's Day with us. We're in the middle of a series right now called Before and After, and uh, in this series, what we're doing is we're looking at uh, different folks in the Bible and looking at how they had one perspective of Jesus before his resurrection, and then that perspective, perspective shifted dramatically after his resurrection. So some of these guys uh, knew Jesus. They all knew Jesus beforehand. Most of them did. And they, some of them thought he was crazy. Some of them thought he was out of his mind. They didn't believe in him. And then they interacted with the resurrected Jesus Christ. And after that interaction, interaction their perspective shifted completely. And they became followers and worshipers and uh, actually gave their lives for the, uh, the truth that Jesus rose again from the dead. So we've been talking about this. We started uh, on Easter week. And if you haven't been able to be here, you can go out to our website and catch it, uh, graceohio.org. You can watch it or listen to it or get a podcast there for free through iTunes if you want. And uh, check that out. On Easter, we just talked about the resurrection. If you've never dug into that, I really encourage you to do that. There's a lot of historical evidence. In fact, the resurrection, the event itself, passes all the ancient historical tests. So it's a fact that it happened. You can look at all those things. It's a fascinating uh, conversation. And then we got into Jesus' family. We looked at his brother James, his brother Jude, and uh, saw their perspectives and how they, they shifted. And this weekend, I want to take you uh, outside the family for the first time, and we want to look at who we would call the Apostle Paul and look at his before and after perspective and see how he shifted from being a, a hater of Jesus Christ uh, over to someone who gave his, literally gave his life, was executed because he would not recant his claim that he saw and interacted with the resurrected Jesus. And so we'll, we'll dig in him some here this weekend. Let me, uh, let me just start by kind of laying down uh, Paul's background because it's pretty fascinating. And uh, when you kind of figure out where he came from, it'll make his writings and some of his teachings uh, make more sense to us. So Paul was raised in this town called Tarsus. And uh, Tarsus was a fascinating place because it was a academic and economic and cultural center uh, of the ancient world. Uh, most uh, historians, ancient historians, would say that Tarsus surpassed Alexandria and Athens for its educational prowess. So it was kind of the place to go in the ancient world to receive a formal education. It was also a place that was very well known for its tradesmen or its craftsmen. And so if you were looking for something from Tarsus, especially something that, caught, that needed um, a material, like a woven material, they were the best in the ancient world at that. And craftsmen did that and were generations and generations deep. So it was a port city so they would export this cloth or canvas or material all over the world, and then some of the tradesmen would assemble it there. So we know that Paul's family were tent makers, and the tents that they made were made from the best cloth, best material that could be woven or created at the time. Tents in the ancient world were homes, and they weren't recreational items. So they didn't wad their tent up and shove it on the shelf in the garage until you know a nice summer day. They lived in them, and the tents in Tarsus were the best of the best. So ladies, think of Gucci or Coach. That was that level of tents. Guys, think of Carhartt, 
All right, good, we're good. All right, so we're all clear. So like the best of the best of the best were created there in Tarsus, and that was Paul's craftsman trade, and it would have been his family business. So in the ancient world, when you received an education, you would go to school and you would learn religion or medicine. Everybody kind of learned philosophy, but you always learned to trade. There were very few kind of full-time philosophers in the ancient world. You would learn a trade to make a living with. And so Paul's family would have had wealth in that he had a trade and he could pursue an education at the same time. So Paul was highly, highly educated. He would have had the ancient, ancient equivalent of a PhD in philosophy and religious, religious thought is how we, the degree he would have got from Ohio State here, right? And so philosophy and religious thought, and he was, his religious thought was that of Judaism. He was a very devout Jew, a strictly devout Jew, highly educated Jew. He was a Pharisee. Uh, in the Jewish order. So that was kind of like the highest level of Judaism that you could espouse to. And he grew up there in Tarsus with this trade, with this money, with this education. So because of where he grew up and because of what we know he was able to pursue in his life, we know that Paul, he was not some backwoods like country bumpkin kind of a thing. He wasn't a blue collar guy. Paul didn't get, he didn't have a lot of calluses on his hands for the most part, right? Uh, Paul was a guy who was uh, highly educated. He was politically savvy. He was multilingual. He was very cultured, all the people and all the different cultures that he would have interacted with there in Tarsus. And he would have been connected. And then he also was a highly skilled craftsman. So when Paul needed to make money, even as he was journeying, he would just make a tent. And so even in the ancient world, somebody would find out that he knew how to do that. He was from Tarsus and knew, see, they would order a tent from him and he would make some money to continue to do the things that God had called him to do. So that's who he was. And we know from scripture that because of his intellectual prowess, because of his cultural prowess, because of his education, he, he was a guy that thought he had figured life out and figured faith out. He had studied it his whole life. He had kind of put himself into the system. In his mind, he had mastered that system, and, and he was the best of the best. In fact, he says that later on in Philippians, that uh, I was faultless when it came to executing the religious system. So when Christianity came around, now remember, this is before he interacted with Jesus, he viewed that very negatively. He looked at that and said, there's this guy from Nazareth who hung out in Doylestown. Nazareth was the Doylestown of the ancient world, right? So there's this country bumpkin. I live in Doylestown. I represent, so we can, I can say what I want, right? So he is like, here's this country bumpkin, doesn't know anything, and he's the Messiah, and Paul would have looked at Jesus and looked at Christianity and thought, this is a backwoods uneducated, uh, second-rate, mystical thing. One more legend rose up, and the commoners are following him. And Paul saw that as a threat to what he had determined to be true and right and proper. And that's the way Christianity was represented, especially at this time, at the very beginnings of the church. It was a threat. And so the establishment was trying to stamp it out. They would persecute, they would kill you for it. 
that they, they would go after you because they didn't want that social fabric and that cultural system shaken at all. And Christianity certainly did that. It would teach almost the opposite of everything that was being taught in religious thought at that time. So Paul, from that background, took it upon himself to zealously persecute and seek to wipe out Christianity. In fact, the first time we meet him in the Bible is in Acts chapter 7. If you've got a Bible, you can open up there if you want. Acts chapter 7. And if you don't have a Bible, there's some there in the chairs. You can use those. It's page 764 in those Bibles in the chairs. If you're electronic, we use the version app. So open that up and you hit live. Our zip code is 44333 and we're Grace Church. You'll see all the notes and all the passages there. So we find him here in Acts chapter 7 and you first hear Paul referred to by his Greek name. Okay, so his Greek name was Saul. So Paul is his Hebrew name. So his Greek name is Saul and you hear him recorded uh, in Acts chapter 7 verse 59 that way. So this is the scenario. They're stoning Stephen. So while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed. Let's just talk about stoning because the name of the, the term has changed quite a bit. To be stoned in the ancient world doesn't mean the same thing as being stoned in this world. So if you got stoned to death in the ancient world, it doesn't mean that you somehow overdosed on marijuana, right? Uh, stoning in the ancient world was this idea that people would become angry at you and they would execute you literally by picking up rocks and throwing them at you until they killed you, right? So this was happening to Stephen. Stephen was the first martyr of the church. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. It's the Bible's way of saying he died. And Saul, that's Paul, just his Greek name, Saul, Paul, approved of their killing him. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the, uh, the, the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. And so he kind of made this his life's goal. In fact, he wanted to do that, was so zealous about that, that he actually got permission from the government to travel and do this full time. This was like his job. You know, what do you do? I'm a carpenter. What do you do? I'm a plumber. What do you do? I kill Christians. You know. that, that was like his job, right? So in Acts 9, just flip over to the right of page, you'll see he gets permission to do this and this is also where he interacts with the resurrected Jesus Christ. Acts 9, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue in Damascus uh, so that if he found anyone there who belonged to the way, that's kind of a name for the early church, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So he's going to go to all the synagogues. All early Christians, the vast majority of early Christians were Jewish converts. So they would accept Jesus, identify him as the Messiah, then they would go into the synagogues and teach Jesus. So Paul says to the, govern, the governor, in essence, can I go arrest these people when they break this law? Okay? 
gets the letter, is on his way to this town called Damascus to do that, and his life and our history forever changes. Verse 3, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go to the city, and you'll be told what you must do. And life for Paul and life for us forever changed at that moment. Paul went, he kind of recovered from seeing this vision because God showed up personally and talked to him. His heart and life forever changed. He went from being a persecutor of Christianity to a promoter of the faith and of Jesus himself. Verse 20, chapter 9, at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Verse 22, Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. And Paul then goes on and he becomes the greatest proponent of Jesus. He becomes the person that God uses to establish and to help the church understand how to function and organize. The before is murderous threats. The after is proclaiming the salvation of Jesus. There's not a more dramatic before and after story in the whole Bible, and Paul is used. He writes 14 of the 27 books of the New Testament. He's used to establish a church. He's used to teach us about God's grace. He's used to denounce legalism. He's used to clarify for Jews and Gentiles who Jesus is. Most of what we know as our faith is explained to us by Paul. Most of what we know about establishing and running or causing the church to be effective is explained to us by Paul. Most of our North American culture that makes sense to us is explained to us by Paul, okay? Uh, Honoring your wife, Mother's Day, we can totally give Paul credit for that one, right? All these things, compare it even to what you see now, where you would see in a non-Christian culture, perhaps a very, very radical Muslim culture, you would devalue women, kill them, sell them, as opposed to Paul who would say, no, 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 men and women, we're all equal, we're all valuable, we're all children before God, husbands love your wives, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Literally, what you're experiencing at this moment is because God used the Apostle Paul. Totally a shift from a guy who would have felt kind of at home in that ancient world, that ancient tradition, and moved over to a a thought process that is grace-based and it's built and given to us by Jesus. And Paul is the one who unpacks all of that for us. So I was trying trying to think through where could I take you to kind of bottom line Paul's thinking and heart process And uh, like when we did James, I just walked you through the book of James, right, in one setting. Then we did Jude, it's only got one chapter. I walked you through the book of Jude in one setting. And there's Paul, which is like most of the New Testament. So I'm going to walk you through the New Testament. We're going to let church out on Tuesday today. So I was like, no, I can't do that. So I was trying to look for like a a bottom line, like nugget, where we could really get a hold of Paul's 
heart and mind, and, and like if he was here for 25 minutes with us today, what would he quickly narrow to? And I think a, a really good shot at doing that is found in Ephesians chapter two. So flip over about, about 100, maybe 125 pages to the right in your Bible, and you'll find the book of Ephesians chapter two. And here in this passage, what, what you're going to see is, is Paul, uh, it's kind of a summary of all that he would think and all that he would teach us through Romans and all the, all the rest, and kind of boil it down to this. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, he says, his words again, he says this, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. One of the things that Paul makes incredibly clear throughout his writings is that the one thing that human beings share is our sin. We all can relate to our sin, right? We all have sinned, he says in Romans, we've all sinned, we fall short of the glory of God. So we've all sinned and we've all been sinned against. So you you think about that. Everybody's been lied to. Everybody's been interacted with selfishly. Everybody probably has been betrayed on some level. Everybody has had somebody cheat them or had uh, uh, false motives with them. That's happened to everybody, right? Not everybody has joy. Not everybody has hope. Not everybody has peace. Not everybody's experienced love from another human being. But everybody's been sinned against, right? And Paul says one of the strong themes of his writing is that sin is what comes naturally to a human being. We are not naturally good people. We are naturally sinful people. And that nature is what comes out for us, right? Because no one has to teach it to you. That's what it means that it's our nature. So your mom, your mom never sat down with you and said, listen, sweetheart, listen, baby, look at me. Look at me, look at me, right? I'm gonna teach you to tell a lie. Now listen, when mommy asks you a question, you tell her a lie, right? I'm going to teach you to be, your mom was never like, you eat all the candy before your sister gets home. That never happened, right? Right? No one ever had to teach you to sin. Why? Because it's our nature. It's our human nature. And Paul is the one who explains this to us. In detail, he said, this is, the, this is who we are, and it's that sin that separates us from a relationship with God. When you sin against God, there are consequences for that sin, and that sin is a breakdown of your relationship with God, and if not corrected, that sin will ultimately cause you to be forever dismissed from God's grace and mercy or go spend eternity in hell. That's the consequences of sin. It's the way that it works, Right? And we, we know this, we have experienced this. When we do something wrong, there are consequences to it, and those consequences hurt. I remember when I was a little kid, about eight years old, I was thinking about my mom a lot. This, my mom's with the Lord now, um, but I was thinking about her, of course, a lot this week, because I miss her a bunch. And um, I remember one time I had this, 
thing with my mom. I'm the baby. I'm the blessing. I'm the best thing that happened to my family. And so uh, I, was, I was at home alone a lot with my parents because I'm, I'm, my siblings are significantly older than I am. And uh, I was at home with mom one time, and I don't know what got into me, but I, went, I was hungry, so I went to the kitchen, and I was like offended that lunch wasn't made. And so I went to mom, and I was like, hey, I'm hungry. And my, you did not speak to my mother that way at all. She, you know, she would just hit you. That's what happened. She would hit you. And I was like, hey, I'm hungry. And she looked at me, and she goes, well, get something to eat. And I said, you haven't made lunch. Oh, ho, ho, ho. very bad decision. And, and she said, you go into the kitchen, and you make something for yourself, or you can just not eat. And I said, well, I think you should make me lunch and you don't love me and you are just wrapped up in your own life and that's why I'm hungry right now, right? I don't know what she reached for. I don't know if it was a gun, a knife or what it was, <laughs> but somehow she reached and I flinched and, and, and she, said, she said, you don't talk to me that way, young man. I said, I'm out of here. I'm eight years old. I'm like, I'm out of here. So I went and I, I made a backpack and I'm like, I'm running away from home. And I, on my mind, I'm thinking, I'm teaching her a lesson, right? And I walked down the hall and got my stuff, and I walked out the front door, and, and she kind of disappeared and came back. And I'm standing on the front porch, and she walked to the door, and she hands me a brown paper bag. She goes, here's your lunch. Have fun living life by yourself. Quote, have fun living life by yourself. Shut the door and locked it. This happened to me. You see why I go to counseling? This happened to me, right? And the panic that goes through a little kid's heart, like, oh, snap. Mama called the bluff, you know? And I remember I thought, well, I'm going to outsmart this old woman. And so our, our house had three doors. It had the front door, a side door, and a back door. So I ran to the side door. My mother broke her back when she was in her 30s. She would walk like this in her 30s. Somehow that crippled old woman beat me down the steps and I reached for the side door knob and it had windows in it. And as I reached for it, I saw her and she locked it. I'm like, oh, right? So I took off for the back door. This, it'd take her an hour to go up the steps at her house. She levitated herself up the steps, right? I read, she locked it. And I always remember like her little face in that window, like, nah, there's consequences to your sin, you little pagan, right? And in my church, you just went to hell for everything. I thought, oh man, I'm a goner, right? Because I'm not talking to my mother. Well, Paul, like he taught us that. And he just, he looked at us and said, listen, this is who we are. This is who we are. We are dead in our transgressions. We have separated ourselves from God in our sin. We have picked a, a side, and it's, it's the devil's side, the kingdom of the air. It's, it's that side. It's the side of evil. Because it's our nature. We do this, and we do it naturally. We can't stop ourselves from doing it. And Paul taught us that. Now, here's what's interesting. Before and after, okay? Before Paul interacted with Jesus, ready, ready? He still believed that. Paul always believed that. He always believed that people were sinners. He believed you're a sinner and I'm a sinner. He believed his mom was a sinner, right? He, in fact, 
It's what he dedicated himself to. You are sinners. That belief system for him never changed. Before Jesus, after Jesus, it was always that. Because it's correct. It's actually a correct belief system. The solution to that problem is what was so different. Because before Jesus, Paul believed the right things, but he tried to solve those problems in the wrong ways. Paul thought this was, would have been his mindset. Well, I'll just outsmart it. I'll outwork it. I'm going to learn everything that God, I'm going to learn every rule that God could possibly think up, and I'm going to master that rule. I'm going to get an A plus in following God. And I'm going to make a list. The Pharisees were famous for their list. They had a, they had a list There were 64 categories. One of the categories was what to do on the Sabbath, and that category had 39 rules under it. He was a Pharisee. He had a list for everything, and he says says in uh, Philippians chapter 3, he said, I was perfect at this. I figured it out. I mastered it. I conquered it, and therefore, I overcame my sin, and I proved to God that I must be accepted by him. It's not what God did for me, it's what I did for God. And God, I beat the curve. I went to church every week, I said my prayers every week, I said the prayers my mama taught me every week, I gave some money to the church every week, I, I didn't smoke, drink, chew, date girls to do, I didn't even cheer for Michigan. I was a perfect follower of God. Paul thought that before He knew we were all sinners, because it's just true. We all know that, right? It's just true. His solution to that sin before was, I'll beat it. I'll beat the system. Now, look at this. What he says then in verse 3 is radical. In fact, this had not been taught for centuries, and not clearly, and not clearly understood. It had absolutely changed. And you see the before, we're sinners and I beat the system. And then the after of Paul is radical, radical, radical. In fact, what he's about ready to say cost him his life because he wouldn't back off of it. Look at what he says. Look at it, verse three. All of us live under the cravings of the flesh, following desires and thoughts like the rest. We are by nature deserving of wrath, right? That didn't change. That's just true. Verse four. But, big word right there, circled in my Bible, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. That phrase was earth-shattering That truth, listen, literally changed the world. It shifted everything. The idea that I am saved by grace. It's not what I do for God, it's what God has done for me. The word grace, if you were to define it, all it means is means unmerited favor. Or my favorite definition is Ezra's definition. God loves us just because. Why does God love me? Because he decided to. You mean because I'm such a clean cut person? Nope. 
You mean because I follow the rules? Nope. You mean because I came to church with my mama? Nope. You mean because I, 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 I put the most money in the basket? Nope. Why does God love me? Because? Because he chose to love you. I can't earn his love. I can't spur his love. He chose to love me. My salvation is by grace and by grace alone. And this idea was absolutely radical, earth-shattering, and short-circuited Paul's brain. Because everything he studied and everything he did was, I'm going to outperform my sin. Give me the rules and I will get an A+. And Jesus is over here saying, you can't do it. You can't do it. In fact, in Jesus' teaching, he really got funky with it. Because Paul would have said, I've, I've never had an affair, ever. See, A plus. And Jesus would say, you ever look lustfully on a woman? Then you've had an affair with her in her heart. What? What? It's her fault. See? Cover her up. Put her in a burqa. Her fault. Jesus said, no, no, no. That's you. That's you, champ. Because you're a sinner. I've never killed anybody. I'm not going to, I never killed anybody. You hate your brother? It's like you commit murder. What? He's an idiot. Everybody hates him, right? Nah, that's his fault. Jesus said, no, that's you. That's you, champ. That's your heart. You are by nature a sinner. You cannot stop yourself from doing it. It's not what you do for me. It's what I have done for you. It is by grace that you have been saved. In fact, he goes on, he elaborates on it. Look at it, verse 8, same chapter 2. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith. Through faith in who? Faith in Christ. See, if I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord, and I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. Those are Paul's words in Romans. Same guy. I'll be saved. My faith in Jesus... My faith, my belief that what Jesus says about me is true, that I'm a sinner, and what Jesus says about himself is true, that he's my savior. It is by grace you're saved through faith, and this is not, that's a big word, I underline that one in my Bible, this is not from yourself. That frieds Paul's circuits. Why was he killing Christians? Because he was trying to serve God. His logic had gone that far and become that distorted that it made sense to him that if he really, really loved and honored God, he would go kill people. That was religious conviction for him. That's how far he would look and say, I'll do anything, I'll kill for God. She's like, what are you talking about? I, I gotta earn this A. It's not from you. It's by grace that you're saved through faith is not from yourself, it's a gift from God. Salvation is something that you receive, it's not something that you earn. It's something that you're given, it's not something that is undeniably due you, because you beat the curve. By grace you're saved through faith, it's a gift of God, not, circle that one too, by works so that no one can boast. Jesus has done this for us, Paul would say. Well, I'm a sinner. Yeah, I agree. I always have. We all know that, right? You sin against God, there's consequences. You are by nature objects of God's wrath. 
But Christ has provided a way of escape. Christ has provided a way of reconciliation. Paul's words again. Christ has made a way, and that is received by grace. When I ask for the gift, the gift is given. And when I receive the gift, the God who is rich in mercy, who is deep in love, through his grace will forgive me and cleanse me and change me and make me acceptable to him. All Paul's concepts, everything he wrote, everything that God spoke to him and he wrote and passed on to us, coming from a guy that spent his life trying to beat the curve. And then he interacted with the resurrected Jesus. And Christ downloaded this truth into him through the Holy Spirit. And it absolutely, radically, completely altered him and us and laid out the path of salvation. How do I know I'm going to heaven? How do I know I can walk with God? How do I know God's going to interact with me? Well, by grace, I ask for forgiveness. God is faithful and just to cleanse me and forgive me. And he gives me this relationship. It's not me being religious. It's not me being better. It's not me beating the curve. It's me resting and receiving the love and the mercy of God. I love what Paul says in the book of Philippians. If you turn over just a few pages to the right, you'll find it. Philippians chapter 3. He talks about this, I'm going to earn my way to heaven thing. And you see this transformation about halfway through verse 4. He says this, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider a loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, and yes, to know the power of his resurrection. See, before, after, before, after. And the big shift in Paul wasn't that he went to killing Christians to be on the Jesus team. That wasn't the big shift. The big shift in Paul was that he went from thinking, I'm going to beat the curve to realizing it's not what I do for God, it's what God has done for me. And he received and accepted and was transformed by the mercy the grace of a loving God. I'm going to ask the band to come up. And as they settle in, guys, let me just ask you that. What is, what is your before and after continuum? What is your before and after continuum? Where, where are you at on this? I was raised, this stuff strikes very close to my heart because I was actually raised in the Paul thought system that you, you try hard enough and you beat the curve and God has to say yes to you. I grew up thinking that. 
And it was only later in life that the concept of grace was even introduced to me. I knew God, I knew I was a sinner. I knew God was upset. I knew he didn't like it. I just, nobody ever told me he loved me. <laughs> that was like a shocker, right? So the grace thing was new. What is your before and after story? What I found in my own life and what I see in many people is that we have oftentimes a wrong view of God. Many people view God as a distant God. He's the God of the mosque or the God of the cathedral or the God of the church building. And that is a God that has to be appeased once in a while. I I kind of ignore him all the time, but to make sure I don't cross the line, I'll show up, I'll go through my ritual, I'll make sure I make it for, you know, the right holidays. I'll put a little money in the plate because that's like a good luck God thing. And I'll keep that God at bay. And I I was taught to do that. Wherever I did, whatever I was doing, I would get up and go to church, right? Because I had to pay off the credit card balance that week. Many of us see God as a disappointed God. And I felt that way, that God was just forever annoyed with me. And, and I remember thinking, I remember one time I went to, to church as a teenager, and I basically heard, don't smoke, don't drink, don't chew, don't date girls who do. And I thought, all right, I'm in. I went the whole week. I didn't smoke, drink, chew, date girls who do. Came back, and I got a new set of rules. And I just threw my hands out. I thought, man, you can't win this game. You cannot win this game, right? It's too many rules. And when I thought I was interacting with a disappointed guy, whenever I interact with someone that I can't please... I tend to throw my hands up. I, I, I get a screw it mindset. I really do. Whatever. Just t- tell me what it takes to make you be quiet and get out of my hair, and I'll do it for you. And many of us are that way with God. What's it take? God, you want, you want some money? You want some time? You have to volunteer once in a while? What does it take? Because we're, we're frustrated by lack of relationship. And then the one that I really struggled with was seeing God as an inspecting God. That God was forever up in my business, looking at all the little things. And I thought, man, I better get it right because he's going to, my lightning bolt is on its way and I'm trying to outrun it, right? And I'm just trying to do, 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 do. Here's legalism, here's this, here's that, here's these things. Here's the problem. All of that is what Paul related to before. And none of it is true about God. After he realized that God is a God of love who's rich in mercy and full of grace. God is a God of holiness. There is a judgment. There is hell. There is righteousness. There is wrath. But it is all escapable. Through the mercy of God, what he has done for us, not what we have done for him. God is not a distant God. Distant gods don't put skin on and come down and hang out on earth so that we can figure out who they are and how to relate to them. He is not a disappointed God. Disappointed gods don't long for relationship. They push people away. They don't want to hang out with you every day. They don't want to meet you in a church. They don't want to connect with you. And he's not an inspecting God. If, if God was inspecting God and that is what caused our lightning bolt, would, would we not have all got our lightning bolt by now? Huh? Right? Do you remember Friday night? <laughs> yeah. We would have got our lightning bolt by now, right? Jeffy knows. I know how it works, right? We would've, it would have. God's got plenty of ammo to get us with. 
It's not his heart. He wants to forgive. He wants to love. He wants to embrace. And Jesus is the one who said, John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll obey what I command. If you accept my love and you accept my forgiveness and you accept my grace, I will transform your mind and I will transform your heart and you will align your life because you love me, not because you're trying to earn my love. What's your before and after? Paul was the most cleaned up, moralistic, traditional religious person you ever met, but he did not love Jesus. And the big shift in his life was that he fell in love with Jesus and he accepted and embraced the relationship that he was offered. Have you done that? Is that true of you? Are you alive in that? Do you walk in that? I encourage you to think about it and pray about it as we worship and we sing. Give God some freedom and latitude in your life and let him kind of bluntly define where you're at and then gently lead you to where you need to go. If you have never accepted Christ as a savior, do that. There aren't magic words. You talk to God, he knows what you mean. You don't have to say the right things. He knows what you mean, right? Do that. And if you've never had a before and after where you've accepted the relationship that Christ wants to give you, asking for it, asking for forgiveness, and accept all that he wants to give you, right? Think about it, pray about it, give God that latitude today.